There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The book, the first Samuel, chapter 8. And if you can, please stand when you get that. First Samuel, chapter 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second, Abahah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. And make us a king to judge us like the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. Father, we're so thankful for just what we've experienced this morning and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Now we pray that that same Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds and give us good fertile ground in our hearts, that your word may take deep root and have a fruitful abundance. Ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Scott Waddell committed an indiscretion nine years ago when he chose to bend the rules and show off his billion-dollar submarine to some guests. It was a momentary indiscretion that destroyed his career and nullified 12 years of naval training. Scott was the captain of a nuclear submarine, the USS Greenville. He graduated at the top of his class and had been handpicked out of 250 naval officers to command this fast attack sub. His life was a success in every way imaginable. He had a great marriage, a beautiful daughter, and a bright future. But then on February the 9th, 2001, he violated protocol and did the unthinkable. In front of his guests and at a high rate of speed, he took his sub from deep ocean waters and rocketed it toward the surface. But before the sub reached the surface, there was a loud crash. It was one of those moments when you have a full body reaction. When Scott grabbed the periscope, he saw a Japanese training ship and high school kids scrambling to get into life rafts. Nine of them lost their life that day. It became an international crisis, and Scott was relieved of his command that very day. Near the end of his book entitled The Right Thing, Scott writes these words. All of us have those pivotal moments in life when you take your eyes off the road and suddenly... There's a child on the bicycle right in front of you. 
You may have a momentary indiscretion that has lifelong implications. Those seemingly insignificant choices that can suddenly take on a proportion that we never thought or dreamed would be possible. We think, that can never happen to me, but it did. And then in eight minutes, my life was totally changed. At age 42, Scott was able to piece his life back together, but it was at great cost to him and his family. I wonder how many of us this morning have allowed ourselves a small momentary indiscretion that turned out to have lifelong implications. We may think, just this once, I'll drink and drive. Just this once, I'll steal from my company. Just this once, I'll have sex before marriage. Just this once, I'll cheat on a test. Just this once, I'll show off my submarine. When we last left our study, things were looking pretty good for Israel. They had soundly defeated the Philistines and even recovered and reclaimed some lands that they had lost. But having the Ark in Jewish territory didn't automatically solve their problems. For during those 20 years when the Ark was in Abinadab's house, a new generation had arisen and were crying out for radical changes in Israel's government. For centuries, the people of Israel had looked at Jehovah as their king, but now they asked him to give them a king just like all the other nations. In other words, it was a mistake of epic proportions. They wanted to show off their submarine. It was a critical time in the history of Israel, and that is where we find ourselves this morning. Look at verse 1 with me, please. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, the name of the second, Abaha. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Chapter 8 takes us forward apparently many years to the time when Samuel had now became old. We are to understand that the peaceful situation we left at the end of chapter 7 has continued through all these years. They stand in sharp contrast to the earlier two decades when Israel was away from the Lord. Probably 20 or 25 years have elapsed between the events quoted in chapter 7 and those in chapter 8. First, I'd like us to notice that Samuel had two sons. One was named Yahweh is God, which is translated Joel. And the other is called Yahweh my father, which is translated Abaha. Two sons who, according to their names, were raised to know and obey the will of God. But we read, they did not follow. Instead, they turned aside. Samuel set for his boys a good example. He provided proper instruction. But as they grew older, they chose not to follow. How tragic that both Eli and Samuel had sons who failed to follow the Lord. The incredibly sad thing to me is Samuel's sons were no better than Eli's sons. And although the, contact, the conduct of the young judges took specific forms that was different from the behavior of the young priest, each selfishly exploited their position of responsibility. 
entrusted with the service of the people, both the sons of Eli and the sons of Samuel, abused their trust by putting themselves before those they were supposed to serve. Eli's son succumbed to the lust of the flesh. Samuel's son succumbed to the seduction of money by taking bribes from God's people. And at first glance, it almost sounds like Samuel hadn't done any better raising his boys than Eli had done. But unlike Eli's failure with his sons, I don't think Samuel failed his boys. I think they failed Samuel. Notice it says there in verse 3, they did not walk in his way. In other words, Samuel had walked the right way before them as an example. He had always honored God by his behavior and his actions. But when his boys grew up, they made a conscious decision to live their lives differently than he had. They looked at old dad and saw a man who had wasted his life by not taking advantage of the financial opportunities of his position. So they ended up taking bribes and perverting justice. What a heartbreak it must have been for Samuel, as it must have been for Eli before him, to realize that his very own sons were not walking in the ways of the Lord. Now, in full disclosure and in all fairness, Samuel probably should have never allowed his sons to become judges. But perhaps he was hoping that the responsibility and the honor of his position would cause each of them to step up their game. But instead, it has caused further problems. Look at verse 4 with me. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. They said, Make us a king. The sad thing is, is just a short time before, if you remember, there was a stone set up with the name Ebenezer, which means the Lord is our help. And the nation had rallied around that truth for a great victory. But not long after that, it's all forgotten. Our memories for what God has done for us can be incredibly short sometimes. Also, there's not the slightest indication that they want Samuel to determine God's will regarding a king. There is no reference to prayer on their part and no evidence of humility either. They want what they wanted, and they wanted it right now. That sounds thoroughly modern, doesn't it? The real issue, though, is they wanted to be just like the world. And the first step in that direction is when we choose to forego our prayer life. What happens when we exude confidence in our flesh? The answer is we take that next step to the spiritual downgrade and we resolve ourselves to prayerlessness. The Israelites did not listen to the voice of God because they were not active in their prayer life. They had forgotten that God, their real king, wanted to speak to them and lead them. I found in my own life that pride and self-confidence naturally leads to prayerlessness. They go together like steak and potatoes, corned beef and cabbage, or peanut butter and jelly. Pride and prayerlessness. 
one who thinks he can stand alone has no sense of the need of a prayer life. After all, why is there a need to pray if we think ourselves strong enough to resist temptation? And if we delude ourselves into believing that we can handle life on the basis of our own strength and willpower. I find it interesting that it was the elders of Israel who on a much earlier occasion came up with a proposal to solve the national security crisis of a military defeat by the Philistines. Their proposal was to bring down the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. The idea, however, was a tragic failure. Now faced with another crisis, which as we will see later also involves a military threat, they meet together, apparently agreed on their proposal, and brought it to Samuel for his approval. I cannot help but think of some of the other proposals that come forward today that they say will make the church more efficient, strong, and effective. The proven experiences of the World Business Management offers methods that have made other organizations strong and growing. And so they tell us if we would only implement some of those strategies of these businesses or recruit the same kind of leaders that they recruit, the church could really make an impact. I wonder whether we hear the faint echo of the elders of Israel, give us a king like all the other nations. The only problem is the church isn't a business. It's a family. And so it can't be ran like a Fortune 500 company. And so these people come up to Samuel and they say, look, man, you are old. I wonder if Samuel thought, well, don't spare my feelings. Just be upfront and honest and tell me how you really feel. The story of 1 Samuel began with another old man leading Israel. We learn in chapter 2 that Eli was also very old. And if that's not bad enough, it says he was also very fat. The Bible is nothing if not honest. So we see that initially the elders used Samuel's advancing age as an excuse to simply get what they wanted. Now in preparing this, I learned that that is nothing new. Dan Airely is a Duke professor who has done extensive research on dishonesty. He is astounded by how widespread people's tendency is to lie and to be deceitful. His book gives clear empirical verification for what you and I know happens all the time. Listen to what he says. Over the course of many years of teaching, I've noticed that there typically seems to be a rash of deaths among students' relatives at the end of the semester. It happens mostly before the week of final exams and before papers are due. Guess which relative most often dies? Grandma. I'm not making this stuff up. Mike Adams, a professor at Eastern Connecticut State, has done research on this very thing. He has shown that grandmothers are 10 times more likely to die before midterm and 19 times more likely to die before a final exam. Worse, grandmothers of students who were not doing well in class were at an even higher risk. Students who are failing are 50 times more likely to lose granny than the non-failing students. It turns out that the greatest predictor of mortality among senior citizens is their grandchildren's grade point average. The moral of all this is if you are a grandparent, do not send your grandchildren to college. It can kill you, especially if your kid, grandkids are intellectually challenged in any way. 
But in all honesty, growing old has advantages and disadvantages. On the negative side are things like decreasing energy, aches and pains, and the growing certainty that death is rapidly and unmercifully approaching. Oh, yeah, and you start looking worse. While we were at the beach last week, every day I would go to their workout room and run on the treadmill and ride the bike. The crazy thing is the walls of the workout room were covered in full-length mirrors. Now, that doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I don't want to see how bad I look. That's kind of the reason I was there in the first place was to try to work some of the ugly off my body. Now, on the positive side, the older you get, the less you have to worry about peer pressure as all your peers keep dying right before your very eyes. Maybe I think more about my mortality since I'm going to be 50 years old this year. People tell me that's just middle age which would be a whole lot more comforting if I knew more people who lived to be a 100. Well, now that I've sufficiently depressed everyone, let's move on. So the elders say, not only are you old, but on top of that, your sons don't walk in your ways. Now, if they had been truly concerned about the leadership of Samuel, they could have just asked him to remove his sons from their positions of power. But they didn't. And the reason why they didn't was because they had a hidden agenda. Their agenda is not they had any righteous desires, but simply they wanted to be just like all the other nations. In reality, they were using all this simply as an excuse. The following illustration of excuses is one of the best I've ever heard. It says, The commanding officer was furious when nine GIs who had been out on passes failed to show up for morning roll call. Not until 7 p.m. did the first man straggle in. I'm sorry, sir, the soldier explained, but I had a date and lost track of time and I missed the bus back. But being determined to get back on time, I I hired a cab. Halfway there, the cab broke down. I went to a farmhouse and persuaded the farmer to sell me a horse. I was riding to camp when the animal fell over dead. I walked the last 10 miles and just got here. Though skeptical, the colonel let the young man off with a reprimand. However, after him, seven other stragglers in a row came in with the same exact story. They had a date, missed the bus, hired a cab, bought a cow, and it died. By the time the ninth man had reported in, the colonel had grown weary of it. Okay, he growled, what happened to you? Sir, I had a date and missed the bus back, so I hired a cab. Wait, the colonel screeched at him. Don't tell me. The cab broke down. No, sir, replied the soldier. The cab didn't break down. It was just there were so many dead horses in the road, we had trouble navigating around them. (laughs) So sometimes excuses are honest excuses, but most of the time they're just that. They're just excuses. I've heard it said that once you get good at making excuses, that's all you'll ever be good for. The elders presented their request to Samuel and backed it up with several arguments and excuses. Anytime we want to justify a course of action we wish to take, we come up with a list of what we think are logical arguments, which are often nothing really but excuses to do the things we wanted to do in the first place. But finally, the real reason is given. In the last part of verse 5, 
they said, we want to be just like all the other nations. But Israel was never designed to be like all the other nations. In fact, they were to be unlike them and superior to them in every way. And so right from the very beginning, God told his people that he didn't want them to be normal. He told them he wanted them to be different. In Leviticus 18.3 we read, Do not follow the practices of the land of Egypt where you used to live, or follow the practices of the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You must not follow their customs. Do you know what their customs were? Sexual perversion, incest, bestiality, adultery, homosexuality, child sacrifice, and such like that. To be a Christian is a call to walk a different path than the world walks. The world is on a broad way which leads to destruction rather than on the straight and narrow that leads to life. The thing is, though, the broad way often appears to be the more promising choice. But God, God's way is the only way that leads to heaven. Hear now the words of the Apostle Peter. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who brought you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In that verse, the King James calls us a peculiar people, which is in a way a good translation. The world will indeed think that the Christian is odd. They will laugh and mock, but we must embrace the way of the cross. We are not to be like everyone else. We are to be different. For example, seagulls are an interesting group of birds. They're very competitive and jealous with one another. If you don't believe me, just go to the beach and throw a few pieces of bread on the ground, or in Connie's case, Fig Newtons, and watch them fight over it. But it goes beyond that. If you were to tie a red ribbon around one of their legs, making him stand out from the other birds, you will have sentenced that seagull to an execution. The others in the flock will viciously attack him with their claws and beaks, ripping through feathers and flesh to draw blood. They will continue this violence until he lies dead and trampled in a bloody heap. A little morbid, I know, but you get the picture. A seagull will not allow another to be different or possibly better than himself. And I think maybe the Israelites were tired of being different. While everyone else had a king, they had a prophet. And it caused them to stand out from among the crowd. I get that. I don't like to be the only weird one. But you know what? Throughout Scripture, you will see that God has called his people to be holy. The word holy means to be separated. In other words, to stand out from everyone else. How do we do that? By seeking after the things of God. By putting his word and his leadership over our wants and our desires. Now, why would we do that? Actually, there's a real good reason. In 1 John 2.15, we read this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of life and the pride of possessions is not from the Father, 
but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. When we seek the things of the world, we're settling that for which is temporary when God wants to provide us that which is eternal. So then why are the things of the world so inviting to us? Because we, we want to be like everyone else because that brings acceptance. But is acceptance always a good thing? There's a bumper sticker that says, Don't follow me, I'm lost also. You see, motion does not always mean a purpose. So be very careful if you follow the crowd, for they may not know where they're going either. I do want to bring out one thing that some of you may be thinking about. Why was it wrong for Israel to ask for a king? I mean, God had previously told Israel that she would one day have a king, and God had promised Abraham and Sarah that kings would be among their descendants. Some have pointed to the prophecy of Deuteronomy 17, which reads, When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you will set as a king over you. You may not choose a foreigner who is not your brother. So didn't God said Israel was supposed to have a king? Yes. Does that mean it was all right for Israel to demand a king? No. What do I mean? I have no idea. Verse 6. Just kidding. Let's see if you're awake. There is evidence in the Pentateuch that Israel would one day have a king. God promised Abraham and Sarah and Jacob that kings would be among their descendants, and Jacob had named Judah as the kingly tribe. Moses prepared the nation for a king when he spoke to the new generation, preparing them for the promised land. It wasn't Israel's request for a king that was the real sin. It was them insisting that God give them a king immediately. I think the Lord had a king in mind for them all along, David the son of Jesse, but the time was not ripe for him to appear yet. So the Lord gave them their request by appointing Saul to be king, and he used Saul to chasten the nation and prepare them for David, the king of his choice. The fact that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin and not from Judah is evidence enough that he was never expected to establish a dynasty in Israel. We'll get into the danger of insisting that God always gives us what we want next week. Now, verse 6, please. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. We are told in verse 6 that this request for a king had displeased Samuel. However, much to Samuel's credit, instead of arguing with the people or defending himself, the remainder of verse 6 says, he prayed to the Lord. Samuel was obviously upset, but instead of lashing out at the people, he looked up to God. That, by the way, is the best and wisest thing to do when we have the urge to immediately respond to any kind of situation. Instead of lashing out in anger, we should look up in humility. It's like that story of the hermit who grew up all alone. One day he decides to leave his cave and make his way to town to see what it's like. As he approaches the town, he stands on a railroad track 
and sees a train coming. He had never saw one before and didn't know what it was. So he stands in the middle of the track and watches at wonder at this approaching train. He sees it getting closer and closer, so he starts yelling, Stop, stop! But instead, the train only blows its whistle. He watches it getting closer and closer, and now the conductor is blowing his whistle like crazy. At last, the man jumps out of the way, rolling down a hill, and fortunately, he escapes with only a few scrapes and bruises. He finally comes upon a parsonage, and the pastor, upon seeing him in his disheveled state, invites him in for something to drink. So the pastor puts on a teapot, and in just a few minutes comes this whistling sound from the teapot. Upon hearing this, the hermit's eyes get big as saucers, and so he grabs one of the pastor's golf clubs and proceeds to beat the teapot until it was unrecognizable. The bewildered and now alarmed pastor says, Why did you do that? The hermit dropped his golf club and said, If I've learned one thing today, it's this. You've got to kill them when they're small. You know, sometimes we can think the same thing. I'm going to deal with this issue right now, when in reality we may be missing the whole point entirely. Likewise, whenever I blow off steam or blow my top, I always regret it. Scripture tells us that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when I let off steam or blow my top or give someone a piece of my mind, it always turns out bad. Not only that, the older I'm getting, I realize I can't afford to give away any pieces of my mind. My brain cells are working with a skeleton crew as it is. So in closing, when Samuel got upset, how did he handle it? Verse 6 told us Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Even though he was initially upset and he took the request personally, in the end he did not react emotionally. He wanted to know what God wanted him to do, so he went to God in prayer. How do we react when we are upset? Now, it's normal as human beings to react to a problem in an emotional way, such as fear or anger or maybe even hurt feelings. But when we have had time to think about it, what do we do then? Do we choose to continue in our bad feelings? Or do we as Christians try to determine what God would have us to do? I hope it's increasingly the latter choice, whereas we have learned we're supposed to be a peculiar people. Or as I like to tell visitors in our congregation, our congregation is fundamental. Some of us are fun and some of us are mental. Father, so much to glean out of this story here in 1 Samuel 8. And I, I see myself uh, in many different passages out of that chapter reacting the wrong way. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just do something in our heart that is supernatural, that doesn't rely on human willpower, but that is spirit-generated and spirit-kept. That's in Christ's name. Amen.